I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Phil Cooley is one of Detroit's most enthusiastic champions. Owner of Slow's Barbecue and developer of Pony Ride, Phil was an early investor in the revitalization of the city and continues to encourage others to follow his lead. Phil, urban enthusiasts everywhere are talking about Detroit and its comeback. You've lived this story. You are a Detroit insider. How would you describe Detroit today? Wow, you know, Detroit today is it's an interesting conversation because it's, it's at such a, 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 an exciting and a beautiful uh, place. If I think about 12 years ago when I moved here, it was exciting for different reasons. There were... There was really, like, on the block I moved into, there was no one else around except one other family who uh, are still there and are still our, our family to me. But, you know, it was very abandoned. You know, no streetlights, no cars. And so today I see so much all across, like, in, in every realm of whether that's recreation, um, whether that's entrepreneurship uh, or creativity. Uh, and, and that it really excites me because what I see in other cities is oftentimes, and why I moved to Detroit, oftentimes that was viewed as competition. And in Detroit, it tends to be community and neighbors, uh, which is so, so wonderful because we need density here and we need neighbors. So we, we, have, we tend to welcome people with open arms. So when we opened, we were clearly not the first people in Detroit. There were some folks that were holding down the floor for decades before us um, through some very difficult times and it's so exciting to watch their success happen as well and then after we came we saw many others come and we're, we're what we're seeing is their success different than ours but everyone's benefiting from it so how do we continue down that same path where we can invite new people in uh, because we need it our infrastructure is for two million people we have seven hundred thousand you know, residents, and so we do not have the tax base to provide for the garbage cleanup, the, the lights, the, the, the public safety, all these things just will not happen unless we continue to grow. Um, but how do we do that in an inclusive manner? Because that's the one thing that we've done pretty poorly, I think, in a lot of major cities, is made sure that this isn't, you know, excluding folks, homogenizing people, and displacing people. So, I, and, and you and I have talked about this before, which, you know, the only thing worse than that is no economic development at all. So can we learn from some of the, you know, borderline tragedies that have happened, and especially when some of the neighborhoods that I lived in, which has, had seen successes, don't get me wrong, but definitely displacement of a lot of my friends. How do we learn from that and continue to see mom and pop businesses um, that are a combination of new residents and old residents? I had the chance to ride in Tour Detroit recently with 8,000 other Detroiters and riding 30 miles through the city. It was really interesting, Phil, to, to see the city from the perspective of a bike rider. Mm -hmm. And we went through neighborhoods that are so vibrant and new shops and mm -hmm. it's exciting and people on the street. And then of course you go through blocks and blocks and blocks of vacant land or vacant property. Mm -hmm. How are those two things sitting side by side, and where do people who see that vacancy get the nerve, the confidence to invest in Detroit? Well, it, it's got to be, it's always about following your passion and what suits you, right? Um, and what's also, of course, respectful to folks that are going to be your neighbors, don't get me wrong. But if you if you look at like the, the Future City um, study, which I think 
was was pretty incredible. And one thing that I really liked about it was that you had the mayor, um, Mayor Bing at the time, and, and Carla Henderson, who was an executive uh, in his staff. You had them going to people's homes in I mean, pretty um, horrific living conditions. You know, this is a, a neighborhood that was built poorly with poor building materials for uh, low-income folks. So it's not holding up in a lot of uh, areas of Brightmore. And so they made this thing where they said, all right, turn the lights off on Brightmore, which was a mistake because, yes, there is a percentage of the population that want out of Brightmore in those parts of Brightmore, but there's other parts of Brightmore where, you know, Chaz Miller and where uh, Brightmore Alliance and the artist, not just Chaz, but the Artist Village and all the incredible things that are happening there are alive and vibrant. So what, what it is is it's, it's never really just black or white. When you have certain areas... Uh, of low density, what I think is exciting is that you, you have the opportunity to say, all right, what is a different type of living condition, right? If folks love to farm and we have that land, right, we'll never really want to be the same land mass. 134 or 35 square miles is, you know, probably inappropriate. We, we sprawl before suburbia. And so what do we do with this, this space? Do we allow for urban agriculture? Do we allow for these massive swaths of green space, you know? Um, and how do we still support the people that want to stay, but also support the people that want to leave those areas? So when you see um, now, most importantly, when you're driving through these areas, what I think that is exciting is that, yes, there's been tremendous investment in the core of downtown and the Woodward Corridor. However, um, when you see the vibrancy in Southwest Detroit, when you see the vibrancy in West Village, and when you see the vibrancy in Seven Mile Livernois and in Brightmore, you're starting to see activity that's happening on a grassroots level that's very inclusive, that's very unique, and just as innovative as anything happening in downtown. These are the exciting things to me because that kind of innovation, I love what's happening downtown because it's incredible and downtown is different than neighborhoods, but the innovation that's coming out of there is coming from people that are working together, doing more with less, because they're forced into that condition, and they're overcoming some really incredible things. And when you say they're doing more with less, what is it that they're doing that is contributing to the felt vibrancy, the, the vibrancy that you can see, and, and, and that begins to generate additional investment? Every neighborhood's different, which is kind of neat. For instance, Clark Park Coalition is so exciting to me. So we get it. We can scream and yell all about the lack of city services um, that we have here, but if we're, if we're truly being honest, you know, let's talk about the lack of taxes that are available to provide those city services. So, you know, is there some incompetency and corruption occasionally? Yes, but the majority of it is the fact that we're just under-resourced. And so when they announced that they're going to close Clark Park, the Clark Park Coalition was formed by neighbors, and that neighbor said, no, this is the heart of our community. We need this. So we won't let you close our park. We're going to participate and make up for this lack of resources. So, and it is a true partnership. They may, the city still maintains it. They still provide electricity to it. But the resource that is the community themselves is, in my opinion, far more valuable. And the extra time and effort that they've put to make sure that their kids have a safe place um, to play baseball, to play ice hockey, to play soccer is so important. So that's public space in, 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 in so innovative and also affecting other neighborhoods learning from that lesson. Same time, in over in Indian Village, this, the residents 
were tired of these historic homes getting scrapped because it directly affected their neighborhood. So what they did is they used text, uh, a text group to be able to, you know, just notify their neighbors when somebody saw something happening that would lower their property values that could cause all sorts of problems when these houses catch on fire, for instance, there's people that live next door to them. And so they text, they peacefully surround the building and call the police and wait for them to get there. So it's really, you know, to watch public safety through technology and communication improve from uh, a citizen standpoint has been so important. So it's not like crazy people with guns driving around and doing citizen patrol. It's people safely, you know, deterring crime and being a true partner. In the same sense, then you have, you know, that's, that's public safety, you have public space. And now to watch some of what we started in Corktown, watch many people do it all over. I mean, it's nothing new by any means what we started doing in Corktown, but watch other entrepreneurs instead of treating them as competition, actually go in and give resources, give time, help them build out their business. When we when we all wanted a coffee shop, you know, I did the word woodworking with friends. The guy next door who's building his his bar was behind schedule and over budget and but he happened to be a metalsmith, so he came over and did all the free metalworking. Our bartenders at Slows came over and poured the epoxy countertops. So we make the joke it takes a, a village to to raise a coffee shop. And it's that mentality, and that spreads, you know, throughout as well. You know, we we ripped off Indian Village and had the same text in our neighborhood. We ripped off Clark Park and did the same approach in, in Roosevelt Park. I wouldn't say rip off because we're all sharing these things, but it's really exciting to watch citizens, you know, be out of necessity saying no is, is not acceptable anymore. We have to have these things. When I took that bike ride 30 miles, I was really tired at the end. So I was in Roosevelt Park. I looked over, Slows is over there, so right across the street, so we latched our bikes up in front of your place and went in. I, and and still, you know, one is sitting in, in Slows, you can look across and see a vacated train station. It's been vacated for many years. What was it about that place at that moment when nothing was around you, nothing was... What signaled to you that this was a, the right place at the right moment that you could make an investment and you weren't throwing your money away? Well, I, I looked at realities versus fear. Um, and so as a developer and a entrepreneur, I think a, a lot of folks in that world really appreciate historic ar architecture, for instance, really appreciate public space and green space in particular. And also it's a major commercial corridor, which is, is usually very valuable in most cities. And it also had access to the expressways, which is very valuable in our, our city because we're 4.5 million people, only 700,000 live inside of that city, so many people access it through the, the expressway. So all of these things were great factors. And my neighbors, you know, Robert and Sue at LJ's, I would go there before I moved into the block. I'd go and wake Robert up because uh, he worked at General Motors, uh, still does, in the factory there. And so he would come down and we'd shoot pool and have a beer. And now their business is, is improved. And um, so, I mean, I, I saw these great opportunities and great realities and I never I never tried to listen to the kind of sensationalist uh, rhetoric about Detroit um, because I live it I, I'm here and I, I know that there's so much dishonesty when I moved here I was living you know I grew up north of here in a rural town about an hour north it's called Marysville I was living overseas at I'm working primarily in Europe in every record store I went to, they were listening to, you know, Jay Dilla, The White Stripes, Derek May, whatever genre, 
you know, it was always Detroit. And so I, knew, I listened to that dialogue. You know, I listened to Tyree Guyton's dialogue because that was art that was changing a community. Um, and those kind of things I didn't see in, in places where everyone else said to move to, like London, Paris, and New York City. You know, I saw those things happen in New York City in the 80s, certainly, but I was seeing less of it. I was seeing them importing everything, and a lot of times they were importing things from Detroit, which was great. You expanded your enterprise um, creation to Pony Ride. Describe what you did there. So Pony Ride was um, a part of the foreclosure crisis. We, we, I bought the building for $100,000, and it's 30,000 square feet. Ooh. Yeah, so very affordable. Um, and I felt really guilty because I needed a home and I needed a wood shop, but I didn't want to be the only person to benefit from something that had a you know tragic past. So what I said is, what do we do with this leftover space? So I invited all my smart friends over and said, what could this be? And the only thing they really taught us um, was that it should be whatever they're passionate about or whoever they is, is passionate about because we can't tell people who they are, what to be. And, you know, because if they were into music, it was, you need music studios and performance space. Or if they were into food, it was about a, a place, a common kitchen. And so we just said, if we want to be a safe, accessible place for people to come in and teach the world that Detroiters offer so much and are capable of so much and will save themselves, if we, if we want to create that space, let's just let them tell us what Pony Ride is. And it's been, our, it's been a philosophy. It's very difficult at times of how organic it is and how much it shifts and changes but it's also been beautiful because the the innovation that will come out of the collaboration between two textile companies is something that's been done over and over again and we can there's textbooks to kind of explain that type of collaboration but the collisions that are happening the innovations of those collisions of the the boat maker working together with the hip-hop dance studio those are those are communities that need to be interacting so diversity isn't just gender and race, it is of course those things, but it's also skill sets and points of career, you know. Sometimes the tr tried and true needs uh, the new idea and sometimes it's vice versa. So we find that, you know, not calling ourselves an incubation space all the time. Sometimes we're an acceleration space. Sometimes, you know, we're neither. We just, we just want folks to be able to come in and access time and space, really, because that's what made me successful. When I was able to learn from my mistakes instead of sweep them under the rug and grow from them, that's when I started having greater success. And that's a shame that not enough people have, you know, access to that. And especially in Detroit, because if you look around Detroit, that sensationalist narrative, and oftentimes it's sadly a classist or a racist conversation, look at what Detroiters have done to that city. And many times when they say that, they mean black people or they mean poor people. And I think that's very disingenuous because if you look at the ownership of the blight and the abandonment here, it's primarily very wealthy white males that don't live in the city of Detroit and make money off of the liability that they own instead of the asset that they truly should own. That you know, because and again, I you know, I just wish more people were like the Penskys and were like the Gilberts. Because I, I, I don't dislike wealthy people. I just dislike wealthy people that exploit community and don't grow together with community. So for the longest time, sadly, Detroit had one narrative, which was more money, more lawyers, I win. And now we're starting to see people saying, no, I have to do this together. And, and it's about that kind of mentality. They all boats rise with the tide. And when you refer to Penske and um, 
Gilbert, you're talking about Roger Penske and yes, Dan Gilbert, sorry, yes. both of whom have been big investors in downtown. They've been big investors in the new M1 rail line, and I know they've been politically influential on behalf of Detroit. Yeah, it's it's been so exciting to see that, that change of narrative. You once called Detroit a blank canvas. Do you still feel that way about Detroit? Well, I mean, I've been misquoted um, so many times, you know, so I think that always be careful what you read, you know, because journalists <laughs> like to say what they like to say. If I've ever called Detroit a blank canvas, I've always prefaced it, um, or not prefaced it, but I've always stated afterwards, at least, to say what that means to me is um, the the fact that we can start over, that we can start anew. New York is a, a ship, Manhattan, let's say, is a ship that is very difficult to steer, right? You have to be very wealthy to live in Manhattan. And I don't know in its current condition how um, inclusive Manhattan will be. But Detroit is a place where we can learn from our mistakes and our successes and grow a city that is better than Manhattan. So we're a blank canvas in the sense that the possibilities are endless and we can create our own future. We're not a blank canvas, of course, in the sense that we don't have to remember our, our history. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk about Dan Gilbert or you reference Dan Gilbert and uh, Roger Penske, you're referencing two business men who are still very involved in the city and its future mm -hmm. and good for them. Yes. But increasingly, cities are not enjoying the same kind of business, civic engagement by business leaders. Mm -hmm. I mean, either the business leaders uh, don't live in the city, you've got mergers and acquisitions, which take the leadership away, you've got new ownership models, and so they're not as interested in the market in that particular place. Right. So something has to take their place, and it seems someone has to take their place, and it seems to me in Detroit, that's people like you. It's a, and the network of people who are just getting out there and getting it done in their neighborhoods or, you know, in other ways in, in the city. Am I reading that right? And if so, how do you keep the conversation going? How do you build the network? You guys aren't all at the country club. So, you know, where's that conversation about the future of Detroit taking place on a regular basis? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, you need boots on the ground, especially in a place like Detroit and eyes on the street, I guess is a, a better way to put it. If you get a bad cup of coffee from Astro or or from Cafe Con Leche or any of the other great locally owned coffee shops in Detroit, you can talk to the owner. He'll probably give you a, a new cup and fix it. But you can also know that that owner not only lives there, but often times raises their family there. And like in the case of Astros, also going out in your neighborhood and illegally, quote unquote, planting trees all over the place. So there's a huge buy-in there. And I see that in a lot of uh, residents and business owners here. And so... It is, it is certainly very important, but I think it ultimately comes down to policy, right? What are we going to do to make sure there is this support for a localized movement? You know, how, how can we make sure there is more ownership? I am not anti-corporation. I'm anti the way things were done, especially in the 80s, um, in the fact that how greedy a lot of corporations became. You know, I, 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 it would be great if they were all Patagonia or Interface Floor, but the reality is there's a lot of people that have exploited uh, and I think that's along the lines of what you're referring to in the, in the question. So if, if we continue to not address policy and, and uh, have disengaged citizens uh, in, in the political realm, then I think that we, we'll, we won't see the change that we need. Because I don't think, 
Well, I shouldn't say that completely because the other thing is that we have besides government is transparency um, through communication, through uh, improved technology. So one of those two things, in my opinion, will have to make, and, and, and um, I will say, sadly, doing a better job of it right now um, is technology and communication saying we're going to hold you accountable for these things. We, we can now reach uh, you know, millions and millions of people to tell them you're doing this to people. And then we can also reach millions and millions of uh, people to t say you are doing this with people to actually support you. So you make your decision um, that way. So uh, hopefully policy catches up, but fortunately communication and people have caught up to an extent. Now that doesn't mean that this exploitation isn't happening every day, but there is that transparency that we need in government and that we need in, in, in our large corporations to be able to overcome these things. You, and I'm, I hope I'm quoting you right, but correct me if I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not, you also call Detroit a democratic city where everyone is welcome to participate. I want to ask you, is that intentional, welcoming everyone to participate, or is it the result of just having no other options? I think it's a combination of both. I wish humans were better planners and less reactionary, but the reality is, is we're reactional species. So we wait for things to get to a certain point before we respond. Um, fortunately, we're incredibly innovative and we're able to oftentimes overcome things, but uh, yeah, it's... Uh, sort of necessity. Yeah, it really, <laughs> it really is in so many ways you know, we, we definitely need each other. And I, I think that myself, I can only speak for myself. I've been so desperate for neighbors, whether that's residential or commercial, that I've often done, uh, not done enough research and to think about who my partners are, who my neighbors will be, just because I know what it means to, you know, have some of the same struggles a lot of the folks in Detroit have. I also am sympathetic to, you know, I gave a commencement speech and the, it was so amazing. This, it was a small high school. And this woman, the valedictorian, just blew me away. She talked about get, taking the bus, the, the public bus system, at 5.30 in the morning to get to school every morning. I just can't imagine that. I can't get up at 5.30 now as an adult. And I do what I love to do. But to go to school at her age and not just get there every day, but to be the valedictorian and to overcome those obstacles with the terrible bus system. And, and, and if you're getting up at 5.30 in the wintertime here, taking a bus for that long, half of it, or probably more than half of it, you're standing outside with on a, on a transfer. And so, you know, I just can't believe what we're putting folks in here. So I, I, can't, I can't stand for it. So I can't stand for um, a lot of the, it, again, it goes back to that sensational rhetoric of, um, you know, gentrification, all these sorts of, you know, crazy things that people have said about folks moving in um, that are, are good, honest people doing good things. Um, I, what I know is that I talk to that Detroiter and other Detroiters, and they want jobs. They want better transportation. They want to be more mobile. They want access to technology. They want things that actually matter. They don't want young, quote-unquote, activists coming in and speaking for them. They have a strong voice, and if you listen, instead of just listening to yourself, you'll hear the things that they, they're asking for. What makes you most hopeful about Detroit's future? Oh, the citizens by far. I mean, I've lived in a lot of great cities. Um, I mean, certainly the infrastructure is really incredible to me as somebody that really respects manufacturing and know that we're, we can't just throw that away. You know, that, that technology is huge. Uh, that infrastructure built, you know, 40 years of the United States, 50 years of the United States. It was the backbone of the middle class. So it is here. And more importantly, the citizens are here. 
and they design things, they engineer things, and um, they, they build things. And they've also, besides having these skill sets, uh, they've also struggled greatly. And I think that when people are comfortable, they oftentimes become complacent. When people struggle, they become innovative and great. I'd rather see Thomas Edison earlier in his career when he's, you know, getting thrown off the train car, starting on a fire, trying to invent the light bulb and eventually getting there versus Thomas Edison later in his career who is buying patents and stealing uh, the credit for uh, inventing cinema over the Lumiere brothers, right? So that's what comfortable, complacent people become versus what that, you know, that struggling, hungry person, you know, was earlier on. Phil, I, I admire your work so much. Thank you so much for talking with us on Night Cities. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Phil Cooley is owner of Slow's Barbecue and developer of Pony Ride in Detroit. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when new conversations are posted by signing up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.